all the instructions about the dwelling place, about building the tabernacle. He's received the Ten Commandments. That's been a 40-day straight period that Moses has been gone. And during that time period, he knows what he is to do. He's got a, the tables of stone in his hand, the words of God written with the finger of God in his hands, right? So while all this is going on, understand Moses, in his absence, these Israelites became restless, right? They became restless. And what happened was they actually, during this time, they actually approached Aaron, who was supposed to be in charge, by the way, and they confronted him saying that they wanted a god, they wanted an idol to worship, right? That was their plan. They wanted to worship when they wanted to worship, and they wanted to worship now. So it was based upon their convenience and based upon their terms. Now, as we compare this to ourselves, one of the things we looked at last week is the fact that, unfortunately, we can see ourselves in this. The human tendency towards idolatry. It's a part of who we are. We just have a tendency. Notice how we worship celebrities. We worship things. And many times worship ourselves. And we looked at that aspect of idolatry and what it does. It draws the heart of man away from God. Okay. Now, Aaron, for whatever reason, out of ignorance or out of fear, we don't really know necessarily. For whatever reason, he bows down to their command and he creates a golden calf. He creates this idol. And what's interesting is they, it says the Bible talks about the fact that what they do is they immediately worship it. They don't have to think about it, man. As soon as it's done, they're ready to worship it. Notice what uh, this back in Exodus 32, 8 from last week. I want to pull out one specific word. It says here in Exodus 32, 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Have they made them a, a golden calf and have worshiped it and have, cruci- and have sacrificed thereon, thereunto and said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Notice that word quickly, quickly it says Quickly, they have turned aside quickly. God makes a point of making, of, of showing us that this aspect of falling into idolatry happens very quickly once we lose sight of God, once we lose sight of the representative of God. In fact, of Moses is a picture of Christ. And what we look at is for you and I. When we lose sight of God, guess what? We will fall quickly into sin. That is just the nature of us as human beings. Jeremiah 14.10 says this of humanity. They love to wander. They love to wander, meaning that their eyes are always looking for things. They're always drawn away. So you and I, guess what? We are sinful by nature. That's who we are. So while all this is going on, right, Moses is informed what's taking place, and God tells him all about the blasphemy, and he actually says, look, I'm going to destroy the people. So in this high-stress moment, what happens is Moses, as an intercessor, steps in, and he begs for mercy for the people, right? It's in this moment, man, which this moment must have felt like it lasted forever because literally Moses steps in between a rebellious people and the wrath of God and puts himself right between the two, this personal risk. And what we see here pictured in that is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ for humanity places himself between rebellious people and the wrath of God. And the fact as a savior, For the lost, when you and I don't know him, he stands as that mediator or that intercessor. And then when we're saved, guess what? When we fall, when we make mistakes, guess what? He works as a mediator between us and God. So we see this beautiful picture where Moses fulfills that role, picturing Christ in our lives. And since God is merciful, guess what he does? He extends grace to them because of the intercessor. 
So the Lord acquiesces, he spares the people. So it's in this moment of personal risk, which is also interesting, that Moses comes to the realization of his level of commitment to the people, right? God wants him to see in this moment how much he's committed to them. So with this newfound understanding of his commitment to God, yes, and his dedication to him, but also his commitment to the people that he's tasked to shepherd, these Israelites, Moses is going to go down from the mountain knowing what's taking place, and he's going to confront them with their sin. He's going to confront them with their sin. So all that has taken place as we pick up here at Exodus 32, 15, where literally all this is going on. Moses has just interceded for the people. He now takes the Ten Commandments. He goes walking down, verse 15, Exodus 32, 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. And the tables were written on both their sides, on the one side, and on the other were they written, right? So these God's first edition, right? These are first edition handwritten copies written with the finger of God, hot off the press, hot off the finger, right? They're being hand-delivered to the people who are supposed to live by them, right? He's bringing this down specifically for them. And isn't it just like humanity to be in the midst of breaking virtually every single one of the commandments as the laws are being delivered? Rebellious by nature. Remember the reason for the law. Why did God give the law? It was to show humanity its sin. It's to reveal to them their need for a Savior. That's the point. Romans 3, verses 19 through 20 say this. Verse 19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world, notice this last part, all the world may become guilty before God. Notice that. It's saying, look, it's revealing sin. We reveals our guilt. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is the knowledge of sin. It reveals sin, right? Keeping the law is not possible because guess what? We are sinners by nature. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have, right? That's why... We need a savior. So that law reveals the need. So God gave the law to teach them and to show them what's right and what's wrong. It reveals to them what it is they are to do. Now, less formally, prior to Moses leaving and actually going up on the mount, what we find is God's already given these specific instructions. God's already given the Ten Commandments. Now, remember last week, we talked about the fact that Moses had talked to the Israelites and prepared them prior to going up on the mount. And we saw there that the Israelites two times, two times they vowed to keep God's commandments. That was their promise. They vowed to keep it. Exodus 20 verse 20 says this, and Moses said unto the people, fear not for God has come to prove you. When you see that prove you, that means test you. And that, and what's the test? The test is this, the back side of the verse, and that his fear may be before your faces right? That you remember to reverence God, that you remember to love God, that you remember to fear God, that ye sin not, okay? So what he's saying is, look, whenever I'm gone, God is testing you while I'll be gone to see if you will sin, right? They were being tested. And with that in mind, let's look back a little bit further. So that was verse 20. Verse 23, back then in 2023, notice this. Very specifically, God says this, Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold, which they have just done. 
Verse 24, an altar of earth thou shalt make unto a calf? No, make unto me. And shalt sacrifice thereon uh, thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thy oxen, and all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. So God is telling him, look, if you'll do things my way, if you'll worship the way I tell you to do it, I will come to you and I will bless you. We see right there promises of God, promises of God. They receive the promises just like you and I, right? We know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do in order to honor God, right? And just like them, we get to choose. Now, we know how they chose. When it comes to golden idols and man-made gods, can they claim ignorance? No, because they were instructed before Moses left what it was they were to do. So God had given them his expectations and told them what they would receive if they honored him, right? So they know what they'll receive by honoring God. And what's really a shame, isn't it such a shame, that it isn't the matter of the potential rewards right, that people react to. Unfortunately, so many times, it is the threats of punishment. It is the threats of punishment that people respond to. And knowing what we know, what's getting ready to take place, right, <laughs> when this expectations, what we have an idea right now when we look at what's going on and how what's going on with these people and what Moses knows and how this is all, we know have a pretty good idea how things are getting ready to go down. There's no doubt. Verse number 16, it says, and the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. Now, so literally, he has the words of God in his hand, written by God. And what's amazing is so many times, I think you and I, we take for granted that we have the very same thing, that we have access to the Bible, right? And it's understandable. Right? Living in America, man, in our day and age, we have greater access to God's word than anyone in any generation ever prior to us. Right? Some of us have multiple copies. Right? I couldn't even tell you how many Bibles I have. I really don't know. Multiple copies in our homes. We have it on our phones. We have it on our tablets. We have it on our computers. We can get on the World Wide Web, man, and we can type it up. You can find any reference to any scripture you want to know. You can find commentaries. Limitless information about the Bible, no doubt about it. Yet, biblical illiteracy is absolutely rampant. People do not know the word, not because it's not available, but because of the fact that they just are ignorant to it. And it's important for us to remember, and I want you to understand, if you have a King James, a 1611 King James Bible, you hold in your hands the very word and words of God. Notice that verse back in 16. It says, the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. God wrote his word. He wrote it and, and made it, preserved it for his people. And if you, if you disagree with me on the version, you and I can have that discussion. And understand, I will take church history and let church history reveal to you that God preserved. The King James Bible is the preserved word and words specifically words of God for the English-speaking world. Listen to this promise in Psalm 12, verses 6 through 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. Notice this is very specific. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. They are perfect words. 
Verse 7, thou shalt keep them. Does that mean just the word overall, the concept? No, keep them. He's talking about words. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them, the words, from this generation forever. You see, the God of creation promised to preserve his words. And guess what? He's done just that. That's exactly what he's done. Not just the general concepts, not just the general stories, not just the historical record, but the specific words, because there are these things called the deep things of God that he will reveal through the words. What this means is if there's a deeper meaning in the scripture that's revealed through specific words, then every word is direly important to reveal that truth completely. Absolutely key. And this made me think of a story that I heard one time. It was a, there was a, a company that made ultralight planes. And I don't know if you know what an ultralight plane is. It's kind of like a, 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 a do-it-yourself kind of deal. But it's, it's a, a framed plane. They build them, and they're made with like aluminum and wire and fabric and all this kind of stuff like that. Well, they made these lightweight planes. And as they sold these lightweight planes, for whatever reason, over a period of time, these planes started falling out of the sky. What was actually happening, the plane wings were literally just folding like this, and the plane was dropping like a rock. And they were trying to figure out what was going on. And they kept going through all the plans and all the designs. And as they looked at it, they're like, look, everything seems fine. Everything matches up. All the computer models, everything lines up. It should not be happening. We don't understand what's taking place. And they started working their way back in to figure out what was going on. As they tracked their way back into the factory where these things were manufactured, they got down to there. There was one specific point where there was a bolt. And what happened was that bolt held those two wings like this. And when you put that bolt in, which went from the bottom to the top like this, and it was bolted this way. And it was designed that way because as the vibration of the plane shook, it would keep that bolt nice and tight because of the vibration. But the problem was that the man on the line decided that he thought it was better if that bolt were to go in from the top to the bottom. And in doing so, what he did was he put it in a situation where the vibration would loosen the bolt. It was one tiny minor change. He didn't even remove the bolt. All he did was switch its orientation. That's all he did. One tiny little change, and the entire plane was destroyed. It ruined it all because of one tiny little change. 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to listen to this scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 through 14. Listen very specifically what's going on in this scripture as Paul speaks. And my speech... And my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He says, look, these words I'm sharing with you are not one that I came up with my own mind, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He says, these words were given by God. They're specific words from him that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Have faith that God has given these words specifically. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. He says, look, we speak, speak amongst others, saved people, those that are developed and mature in their, in their Christianity, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. He says, look, the, the wisdom of this world, it has no value. It comes to nothing. Verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Notice this part. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom. Remember, there's hidden parts which God ordained before the world unto our glory. 
God has things in the scripture that are hidden, that are mysteries that can't be seen. Notice this, verse 8, which none of the princes of this new of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. These hidden things that they could not see in the scripture because they do not have the spirit of God, the demons, the devil himself, as they crucified Christ, they walked right into God's plan. And if they don't understand how to see into the deep things of God, they would have not have done it because they would have seen that. But guess what? They couldn't see it. Listen to this next verse in verse 9. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. You will hear people preach again and again and again that that's talking about heaven. It is not talking about heaven. This entire thing is talking about the word of God. What he's saying is there are things that are prepared in that word that are interlaced through the specific words that God placed in there that are revealing a truth that you need to understand. It's there. And you know what? You cannot see it. Unless, look at verse number 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. He says, look, God has revealed them through his Spirit. Verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Look, how do I really know you unless you reveal to me who you are? And next part of this verse says, and it says, even so. The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. If you're going to understand God, guess what? God's got to reveal himself to you through his Spirit. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So he says, hey, guess what? They're hidden. They're mysteries. They're deep things. But just now he says, look, he's freely given them to us. He's ready to reveal them to us, to show us the truth. Now, how does he do that? Look at verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. It's very focused on the words, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. He's saying you're going to be able to take the Scripture and compare Scripture to Scripture and prove and see and learn. You'll tie things from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You'll be able to interreference these things, and it will reveal a deeper truth. You've seen us do it week after week after week after week as we see these pictures that God has hidden within the Word to show Himself more clearly. And check this out. Last verse, verse 14, qualifies the whole thing. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Right? They look at the Bible and they go, look, I don't understand this thing. This doesn't make any sense to me. What's all the these and the thous and da-da-da? I don't understand. Why is this wording in here? This doesn't make any sense. Right? Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Guess what? If you do not have the Spirit of God that lives within you, you're not a boarding in child of God, you cannot spiritually discern anything. And what will happen is you'll read the Bible and guess what you'll say? It's foolishness. I don't understand it. I need one that's written for me. That makes it more clear. So this means if you change the words to make it easier for people to understand, guess what? It is no longer spiritually discerned. You're trying to reveal the deep things of God with human wisdom. And changing a word that God specifically chose in favor of one that a person felt was better fit. Notice a person felt was better fit. It's just like the man in the ultralight factory who takes that one bolt, just one bolt, and switches it. One word changes the entire 
meaning. And what, find, what we find at this point is which will, at which it's at this point in which we become dependent upon man's wisdom instead of that which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And based upon this fact, it is at this point impossible to compare spiritual things with spiritual things because no longer are we comparing spiritual to spiritual. We now have the human element that's now been introduced and now the whole thing is messed up. And the deep things of God, guess what? They become lost to human wisdom. And it's happened in this world. If you were the devil and you're going to try to attack the word of God, would you take the word of God away from people? No, because they would fight to get it back. What you would do is you would distort it ever so slightly. You just change it here and there to make it easier to understand. You'd find ways to make it fit people's world a little bit better. And in doing so, the very things that God wanted to see, those deep things of God, would be hidden and lost. Now, speaking of human wisdom, let's see how it's serving the Israelites back here at camp. Verse 17, and when Joshua heard the voice, heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, it's, it's not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. He's going, what? Moses, do you hear that? <laughs> it sounds, there's something going on down at the camp. Uh, it doesn't sound like fighting. It actually sounds like they might be having a, uh, a party. That's what it sounds like. So when Joshua heard this and he said that it wasn't, there wasn't a war taking place, he's right. There wasn't a physical war taking place. He's absolutely right. But there was a war nonetheless taking place. Not one that was a physical war, but there was a spiritual war taking place at this very moment, right? It was a war about either serving and submitting to the flesh or serving and submitting to God. James 4.1 says this, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts. Listen to this, what's taking place inside of us? Our lusts, our desires that war in your members. This battle to serve God, right? Will I serve God or will we serve self? Will we serve God or will we serve self? The internal battle that the Israelites are fighting right now and they are losing terribly is the very same battle that you and I are embroiled in every single day of our lives. 1 John 2, 2, verse 15 and 16 says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, right? It is of the world. Right? If we're not following God and his wisdom, guess what we are doing? We are following our own wisdom. We're following earthly wisdom. We're following human wisdom. And we know that it leads to naught, it says. It leads to naught. And when we lose sight of God, guess what? We naturally fall into sin. These Israelites are a picture of us. They lost sight of God. They lost sight of their commitment. And the next thing you know, they're headlong in sin, diving headfirst into destruction. Judges 17, 6 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Without leadership, without someone to follow, without someone to give them guidelines, someone that they, could, they were accountable to, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And Proverbs explains to us, what's the end result? What's the result of doing things this way? Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. 
There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So in this moment, right, the people have clearly, they've made their choice. They have decided what they're going to do. Now, will Moses respond like his older brother Aaron and just go along with their sin? Or will Moses, as the good shepherd that he is, will he stand for God? And will he confront them on their sin? Verse 19, let's find out. And it came to pass as soon as he, meaning Moses, came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot. It's like, man, he's hot, hot, hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and broke them beneath the mount. He's literally carrying those Ten Commandments. He shatters them on the ground, smashes them to pieces. What Moses did in this moment symbolically and literally showed that the laws of God have been broken. No doubt about it. The handcrafted works of God were destroyed as a result of sin. As what was intended. Now understand, the intention for these Ten Commandments was they were to go inside of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. They were supposed to be the center point of the entire, their entire community. Everything spiritually was supposed to be built around this. And they had become worthless and nothing because of the disobedience of the people. We all inherently know the difference between right and wrong. We do. We know what's right and wrong. They knew they were doing wrong. There's no doubt that they did. Because guess where the law, the law is written on our hearts, right? I'll prove this to you. The scripture tells us right here. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inner parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, if you notice that scripture, people go, ah, did you notice in there? It says it's written to the house of Israel. So is that just for the Jew? He's writing the law only on the Jewish heart. Is that what it says? Well, Romans 2 teaches us that it's actually for all of us. Romans 2, 14 to 15 says, For when the Gentiles, the Gentiles, anyone that's not a Jew, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, they just naturally follow the law. He's going to look, when the, when the Gentiles, when they naturally follow the law, these having not the law, look, they don't even know the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Notice that written in their hearts. God's saying, look, all of us in his creation, every single solitary human being upon this planet knows these concepts. They know these laws. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. It's not a matter of knowing what to do. It comes down to this. It's a matter of choosing to do it. Will we choose to do the right thing? And we see the children of Israel and we saw their choice. We know what they're doing. Well, guess what? Remember who they're a picture of? Us. They're us. So we look at their failure. They lose sight of God. They fall into sin. They're in a mess. We look at them and we go, oh my goodness, look what they've done. But yet it's a picture of us. It's a picture of us. You and I are fighting the same battle every single day. Verse 20. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. Right? Moses utterly obliterates their God. And then to increase the impact of what he's just done, he now has them and makes them consume it, right? As the good shepherd, Moses confronts them, unlike his brother, right? He confronts their sin and made them individually address it. He focused on each one of them individually, made sure that they drank of it. Right? And after making them consume it, right? understand, once the gold is 
taken its path through their bodies, it's going to show its real worth when it's revealed in the final product, right? What's interesting, what Paul says here in, in uh, Philippians 3.8, understand Paul's talking about things of the world, and I want you to know that this, this golden idol is a picture of the world. It's a picture of the things of the world, the trappings of the world, idolatry. Philippians 3.8 says this, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He's talking about physical things. And you notice this next part, he says, And do count them but dung, there's your final product, that I may win Christ. He says, look, you know what? It's just dung, the very same thing. So how powerful do their gods appear now, right? How powerful do they look? I want you to notice that no one said a word to Moses. There's no, there's nothing there that says that anybody tried to stop him. Nobody was like, hey, hey, Moses, what's your problem, buddy? No one says a word. You know why? Because they knew they were wrong. They knew they were wrong. They were busted. No doubt about it. And they knew it, man. They absolutely knew it. Verse 21, and Moses said unto Aaron, what did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? How in the world did this happen? Aaron, I left you in charge, dude. I trusted you. Now, they must have done something to you for in order for you to allow this to happen. So tell me, what, what's the story, man? What happened? Well, let's see how Aaron does in explaining this. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. Hey, hey relax, little brother. Relax, relax. Right? It's okay. Man, you know how these folks are. I mean, come on. They're just, they just, they're just blowing off some steam, right? Oh, my goodness. Can we not see this in our heads? Can we see the anger of Moses, the righteous indignation? And when we see Aaron going, oh, whoa, 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 hey, 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 it's all, hey, Moses, chillax, man. It's going to be okay, I promise you. How many of us can picture ourselves maybe back when we were in high school getting busted, right? We might say something like this, it's no big deal, just a little party, mom. Just, just a little party. It's not a big deal. We try to downplay things. We try to, to, to make like it's not a big deal. And guess what? That's always the way the devil tells us and wants us to see sin. He always wants it to be downplayed, right? You can control it, man. Don't worry about this. I know it's wrong, but man, you can control it. It's no big deal. Hey, 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 you're just having a little bit of fun, right? Understand, he's a liar. And he wants to destroy you. That's always his desire. He comes appearing as an angel of light. He can appear as anything that we want to want. He can appear as something that we will lust after. He's always worked that way through the subtlety of sin. So we've got to be careful and pay attention to who he is. But when we're caught red-handed, boy, oh boy, then it becomes decision time, right? Aaron is in the moment right now. He's making decisions. He is thinking right now, man. His brain is swirling through ways he can possibly get this thing covered, right? Do we tell the truth and honor the ninth commandment? Or do we just add lying to our list of sins? Let's see how Aaron does in verse number 23. For they said unto me, God, make us gods which shall go before us, says for as for this for as this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we what not what is become of him. So good, not too bad so far. So far, so good. Here we go. 
Verse 24, and I said unto them, whatsoever, uh, whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, and then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. What? Okay. Right. Okay. So Aaron is trying to pass off his handiwork, right, as the work of God. He's trying to make this calf somehow a miraculous creation, right? He's trying to show us that this, oh, this is actually the work of God, right? If this were the case, would Moses, would Aaron not have spoken up and said, hey, 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 Moses, come on, dude. You got the work of God in your hands. That thing just popped out of the fire as a calf. What are you doing? Don't destroy it. This has got to be God. But no, he didn't say a word. He stayed, remained silent until he was forced to speak. Boy, how many of us can relate to Aaron and what he's doing right now? Forced to speak. You remain silent because you know you're wrong and you only speak up when you are forced to speak up. Proverbs 12, 22 says this, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. We're caught doing something wrong and we try to lie our way out of it. Unfortunately, I think a lot more of us can relate to Aaron in this situation than Moses. And isn't that sad? Isn't it sad when given the chance to be honest, it's easier for us to lie. Isn't that remarkable? When given the chance, the opportunity to be honest, it's easier for us to lie. With your little children, you do not have to teach them how to lie. You have to train them how to tell the truth because by nature, they will lie. Proverbs 16, 2 says this, all the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. That means the good and the bad. Well, you know, it's different when I do it. I have a good reason for why I'm lying, you know. Uh, I mean, God understands. He understands what I'm going through. He understands why I had to lie. True? Does he? Does God understand? Does he accept sin when it's convenient for our lives? No. Sin is sin. Wrong is wrong. God expects us to live righteously. He wants us to honor him. Truth, honesty, live, right, live honest with all men, right? We're just like these stiff-necked Israelites. We always know best. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And guess what? Here it comes again. I know this verse keeps coming up, and I'm sorry, but it fits this situation again. Galatians 6, 8, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. It's about choices. Choices. Sowing to the flesh is the story of the Israelites, and guess what? That makes it our story. Sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. Many of us live with the circumstances or, the, or the, 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 the destruction that sowing to the flesh has brought in our lives. Verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Now, looking at this verse, we look at this and what exactly is this talking about? What is about the nakedness? There's two things that really stand out here, naked and shame, right? Those two words really jump out. Now, if we go back in time, and we look back, and there's, a, there's something called the law of first mention, 
when words first show up in the scripture, it helps you to understand what they truly mean. And we go back to the law of first mention, and we go back to when those words, very first times they show up, naked and ashamed. And look here, back in Genesis 2, 25, it says, and they, it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, why is it relevant that God added that back in the Genesis story prior to the fall? Why is that relevant? Because of what we're seeing here. Prior to the fall in the garden, nakedness was not associated to being ashamed. It had nothing to do with it. It wasn't related to sin. But after the fall, guess what? Adam and Eve, what did they do when God looked for them? They hid themselves because they were ashamed. And he said, who told you thou art naked? Who told you, right? It was the result of sin. Nakedness here in verse 25 is displaying their willingness to oppose God, their willingness to sin. As a side note, if you don't have a King James Bible, and you go and you look at those verses right there that I just gave you in that 32:25. you're going to find that that word naked is not used there. You're going to find it's going to say that they lost control. They were, they were, they were whatever else. It's going to all these, but it's not going to use the word naked because that word naked ties us back to Genesis 2 and reveals to us a deeper truth, right? A deeper truth. Verse 26, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Look at this. Moses stood in the gate of the camp. He says, look, he stands outside of the camp and he says, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? As the good shepherd, right? That he was. Moses not only stood for God and confronted their sin, but at the same time, he made them take a stand. You've got to choose. You've got to choose. As pastors, our job is not just to teach the word of God. Right? It is to preach this word. Teaching is just simply giving information. We're to preach it. The reason why we preach is because, you know what, remember 2 Timothy 3.16, what does it say? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for reproof. It simply says, stop what you're doing. Correction, this is what you need to do. Instructions and righteousness, this is how you do it. It's designed that we might preach the truth and reach people's hearts. He confronts them and makes them take a stand. doesn't just tell them what they've done wrong. He gives them instruction. Here's how you change. After the Israelites' failure and rebellion, which resulted in their sin, right? Moses confronts and challenges them to choose who it is they will serve. And today I'm challenging with the exact same question. Who will you serve? You've got to choose this world is going to draw you. It's going to try to destroy you. It's going to, you're going to take your eyes off the Lord, and if you do, I'm just telling you what's going to happen. You're going to find yourself in sin and filled with regret. And I'm telling you, you need to make a choice, just like I have to choose every single day. Follow the sin, follow the world, or follow God. You've got to choose. And if you're lost today and you don't know the Lord, you get to choose, man. You get to choose the Lord. He's there for you. He loves you, man. It comes down to this. Who will we serve? Who will we serve? Will it be the world with all the insecurity and the destruction that it promises? No matter what the devil lies to you and tells you, it always brings the same thing. Destruction. Look at the broken lives around you. Look in your own heart of the things you've done and the pain that you live with right now. Or will you serve the Lord, right? Will you come to him? Will it be him with the security and the love and the peace that he promises? You should understand it comes down to this. We get to choose. 
God didn't choose for us. We're given free will, meaning you and I get to look at this world, and we get to look at God, and we get to pick one. But when you pick it, man, hold on to it. Because you know what you need to know? Who will you serve? Who will you serve? Because I'm telling you, if you serve self, and you serve this world, it's going to be empty, and it's going to result in destruction. But if you will serve the Lord, if you will serve him and you will give him your heart, he will change you. He will restore you. He will use you in ways that you can't even possibly imagine. I'm a living result of the goodness of God, making a choice not that I was worthy of, but that he offered me. And I just was, I said, man, there's no way I can't accept that. If you're out there today and you say, I don't know the Lord, today's your day. You can choose it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for today and the opportunity of God to bring your word. Uh, Thank you for loving us and, Lord, confronting us with our sin and showing us, uh, Lord, that you care. The reason why Moses confronted them is because he cared for them. He didn't want them to be destroyed. He wanted to bring them to to, to, to restoration. He wanted to restore them to God. And he was willing to stand in for them. And, Lord, I know that you've stepped in for us, God, as the intercessor. And God, I pray, Father, that you'll help people today to decide who it is that they will serve. Will they serve self or will they serve you, God? Please help them, Lord Jesus, to honor you. Help them to see you. Help them to recognize their need of you. God, if they're Christians today and they say, you know what, I'm not serving God like I need to, Lord, please help them. Speak to their hearts, God, and draw them to serve you, God. Help their hearts to be broken for the things they're allowing in their lives. May it be sexual sin or, or, or whatever it may be, God. Uh, frustration, pain, idolatry, whatever it is, God. Help them to recognize the sin in their life, God. To confront it and to, Lord, repent of it. We have to first recognize sin, then we have to take responsibility for sin, and then we have to repent of sin. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that they will get their hearts right with you and they will serve you. And for those that are lost, You don't know Christ. You're like I was 18 years ago, living a life that you believed, hey, you know what, this is just about existing. It's not that. With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed, I'm going to ask you a question. If today you said, look, you know what, if I had a chance to stand before God right now, and he looked at me with those loving eyes, instead of judgment, instead of destruction, instead of what I deserve, he looked at me with love in his eyes, and he said, I'm willing to receive you exactly as you are with all the problems, with all the damage, with all the things that have happened, and I want to restore you because I love you. I created you for a greater purpose, which is not this. It's to walk with me. If he reached out to you with that heart today, and he said, I love you, and I want to receive you as my child, would you receive him? That's the question. Would you receive him? Because I'm telling you, if you would, he's ready, willing, and able to save you right where you sit. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. If you're lost and you say, I don't have Christ, but I want him, it's not the matter. It's just a matter of a choice. God's done his part. The price has been paid. It comes down to you individually. You have to choose. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, if you want to, to walk away from this world and receive the love, the joy, the peace that God offers, you have that chance right now. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to lead you in prayer. It's not going to be the words of the prayer that will do anything for you. Understand, it's not the words. It's not a ceremony. It's not a special prayer. It's not magic words. It's your heart. If your heart wants to receive Christ, he will receive you right where you are. Whether this is recorded or whether it's live, no matter where you are around the world, he will receive you right where you are. 
Pray this prayer with me. And in your heart of hearts, if you truly mean it, God will come right where you are and he will save your soul. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, pray with me out loud right where you are. Ask God to come into your heart. Repeat after me, dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I don't deserve you. But God, I'm asking you by faith to forgive me of my sins. Lord, I'm asking you by faith to come into my heart. Lord, I'm asking you by faith to forgive me, Lord, right where I sit. God, come into my heart, save my soul, and give me a home in heaven. I trust you as my Savior, and I want to live my life for you. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer today and you chose Christ, then guess what? You get to answer that question, who will you serve? And I promise you, if you'll serve him, you will never, ever regret it.